1953, during the height of the Cold War, at Yale University, they had a club for people who were interested in Russian language and culture, literature and art. Um, mostly it was students who were studying the Russian language and they called it the Yale Russian Club. And they would invite guest speakers to come and share about whatever their area of expertise might be. Um, and one time they asked a speaker who was a graduate student who was actually born in Latvia but had a Russian background. His name was Denis Miskevich. And when Denis arrived to give his talk, he was gonna share about Russian music. Uh, instead of preparing a lecture to give to the people, he brought sheet music. And he went to the men, because back then it was only men, and figured out who's a bass, who's a second tenor, who's a baritone, who's a first tenor, and they all got their parts. And he taught them to sing in harmony. And they had such a good experience that they invited Dennis back the next week, and then the week after that. And pretty soon the Yale Russian Club became a singing group called the Yale Russian Chorus. So it was 1953, 70 years ago. Denis Miskevich is still alive. The chorus is still singing. Um, it just celebrated its 70th anniversary and um, happy to say that it is still doing the robust uh, musical tradition that it always has. It's not only Russian music that they sing, but they sing music from Georgia, from Ukraine, other parts of the former Soviet Union. And um, when I was an undergrad, I, so full disclosure, I joined that group. It was a formative part of my life. You know, I enjoy music, I enjoy singing, but not being the best singer in the world, I wanted to sing at Yale, but it's hard to get into those really good singing groups. The Russian chorus was just weird enough <laughs> that they would take me in, and I had a feeling it would be a completely mind-opening experience. Um, we did get to sing in Carnegie Hall a couple times. We got to tour in Ukraine. Um, just a month into my experience, in fact, we were invited to sing in the White House as part of the entertainment for a state dinner for Boris Yeltsin. And I don't know, some of the brass players may have been there that night. Kurt, you might have been there. Um, we, uh, interesting story, they didn't put, plan any uh, food for us, and they just sent us down in, as I recall, somewhere downstairs where we hung out with the Marine Band and Secret Service and ate food out of the vending machines. <laughs> but it was a very exciting time and um, we got these opportunities not because we were the best singing group in the world but because we had a mission and our mission was something special. It opened up doors and it actually broke down many barriers. The chorus was very proud in fact to have been the first private organization allowed to go into and tour the Soviet Union, which was in the late 50s when they did that. And you can imagine what that might have been like. So half of what we sang were folk songs, songs about love and loss and fighting in wars. That was the second half of every concert, but the first half of every concert was all sacred music. It was from the Orthodox tradition, in, not in Russian, but in Church Slavonic. And if you know about the Orthodox tradition, the, instead of having an organ with pipes, the choir is the organ. The choir makes that sustaining sound that carries the worship. And uh, the, the music is so stirring, but at that time, that music was not allowed to be sung back in the homeland because it was the era of the Soviet Union. And so when the Russian chorus members got to go and travel, because they were a bunch of Americans, they could get away with singing the old hymns, 
sometimes going into the decommissioned churches and cathedrals. And they would sing those hymns and the old people would hear them for the first time in years and weep. So the Russian chorus celebrating its 70th anniversary had a reunion this weekend. I took a little time and took Amtrak up to New Haven and got to do some singing and rehearsing with everybody. I will confess I was a little bit nervous. This music was such an important part of my life, but it's been years and I wondered, are the songs still there? Would I remember my parts? Would I remember those words? The most magical thing happened, and it wasn't just my experience, but a lot of the other people. We just opened our mouths, and the music just came out. There's something very mysterious about how music goes deep within us and gets remembered by us. They say that for people, when they lose memories, it's the music that stays the longest. There's also something that happens, and if you're a singer or even anybody who's experienced being in a group where, where you vocalize with others, spoken or sung. Some magical things happen when you're speaking or you're singing and you don't know where the sound that you are generating ends and the sound of the others begins. Because you become one, literally, physically, in the sound waves that you share in, you are one with other people. And what a privilege it was during those years when we would tour up and down the East Coast and always sing with each other to be bonded in that way with your best friends, night after night, singing that music. And while making that music, I didn't realize it. I was seeking a church during those years, and I never found a church per se, but that was my church. With the Russian chorus, it was not explicitly a religious organization. We had devout Jews and Buddhists, uh, we had agnostics and atheists, we had a bunch of Russian Orthodox individuals, some Roman Catholics, and a few even Episcopalians in the mix. But as we sang, we were united in this experience of touching the holy. It was church, and church is many things. So we hear about church in the gospel reading today, and it's interesting to note that in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels specifically, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word church only comes up twice in two places. This is one of those two places. But if you're paying attention and you think about it, when Jesus spoke, the church didn't exist yet. There was no church. If you're thinking about him meaning the church in the way that we use that word today, you've got it wrong, because that would be totally anachronistic. When he says church... The Greek word is ecclesia. And actually, I should point out that some scholars believe that this particular gospel passage was not originally spoken by Jesus because it had to be added later when the church had come into existence as an institution. Or maybe not. Because the word ecclesia, that is translated as church, means to be in a state of being called and gathered. It's the community, the gathering of people. And what he says specifically is very important to how to gather, how to gather well, how to be a community well, one that is mature. He says, um, says that when you have an issue, this is a practical teaching, if somebody um, offends another person, if one member of the community sins against another, the person should go to that person in private and talk to them a loving thing to do, but that doesn't always work. So then 
take two or three other wise people with you and you have a conversation. And if that doesn't work, you bring it to the church, the gathering, the ecclesia. And if that doesn't work, then the person becomes to you like a Gentile or a tax collector. Again, uh, some of the scholars have said that, well, he probably didn't say this because, if you think about it, those of you paying attention, how did Jesus treat tax collectors and Gentiles? He welcomed them with love. So they said, well, maybe he didn't say that. Well, then again, there's another way of looking at it, perhaps. He did say this, and he meant it as when someone becomes a Gentile or a tax collector to you, what does that mean? It's time to start over, a fresh start, a new opening of possibility. Paul offers his take. In, in an uncharacteristically succinct way, he says, Owe no one anything but to love one another. Because if you love your neighbor, that is the source of the way to live the way to live in community. And we need this. It's true, when human beings come together, as many good things as there are, there can be trials, there can be all kinds of difficulties, stepping on each other's toes and worse. And so we need to have some structure. We need to have some organization. You may have heard the joke about church where uh, one person says, I can't be involved with organized religion. The other person responds, well, I go to church. It isn't organized at all. <laughs> we need an institution that will carry the holy things, but we need to know that the institution isn't the holy part. It's that means to an end. But it's just like as it is in the secular world, too. We need to have rules of the road. We need to have codes of conduct and laws. And I think more and more, many of us are realizing we need to have norms. Norms that are agreed upon and norms that are upheld evenly. And when we lose those things, when the norms are broken without consequence, we lose a lot. But then we have to rebuild norms which then will allow us to trust and to move forward in fruitful ways again. When human beings get involved with virtually anything, we tend to make it imperfect. And we can get things wrong even and including religion. And yet, there is no other way. We have to get together. We are designed to be together. You notice when Jesus taught us how to pray with the Lord's Prayer, he said, Our Father, not just mine. To be a Christian alone has been said to be, that's an oxymoron. And when we do come together, surprises are in store. The holiness of God breaks into our midst, as Jesus promised when two or three are gathered. He will be in our midst. Well, finally, I want to share one more thing about the Russian chorus. I was there yesterday morning and uh, sadly had to bid goodbye to everybody and hop on the train to get back down here so I could be here today. Um, so I wasn't able to be part of the big concert last night, but I did get to rehearse uh, some music. And the very last thing that we rehearsed was a song that I remember singing and loving, but I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about when I was younger. It's actually a Ukrainian folk song, and it's called Zirva Lasya Kurtovina. And it's a song about a mother and a son. It says a blizzard is coming, and the mother and the son are in dialogue, and the son says he has to go off and fight 
The mother doesn't want to see him go, but she accepts this is your job. You must do this. He is going to fight for the liberation of the Ukrainian people. And she says, when you return, I will adorn your cross with the flower. And he says, I will return in the blossoming of the wildflowers. And as we sang those words, they had a new meaning today than they had had for me decades ago when I first had experienced them. And it was also incredible to look up at the person who was conducting that particular piece because all the different former conductors had a turn conducting. It was a man named Alex Kuzma, a Ukrainian-American and an alum of the chorus that I remember meeting way back when I was a student, and he was a sprightly middle-aged guy, and now he's a sprightly older guy. But with that very same spirit about him, he composed the arrangement to that piece that we sang in 1976. And as we sang those harmonies, time collapsed and space collapsed. And the words took a brand new and relevant an imperative meaning, the condition of humanity. We are asked to owe no one anything but to love one another. And Christ will be present. Amen. <laughs>